Welcome back to Scripture Central. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and this is John W. Welch. We are really excited to talk with you today about 2 Nephi chapters 3, 4, and 5. These are beautiful chapters. Nephi's psalm, Lehi's death, the separation of the family, uh, the building of the temple. These It covers almost possibly 30 years, maybe a little over 20 of history. So we've got a lot compacted in three short chapters. But before we get to those parts, we have one other item of business to deal with, and that's Lehi's blessing to Joseph. Well, let's talk about the four Josephs then. How can we tell which Joseph we're talking about here, Lynn? Chapter three has four different Josephs mentioned. Joseph, son of Jacob, as Jack said, Joseph of Egypt, and then Joseph, the son of Lehi, this very, very young boy. He's probably less than 10 at the time, but these prophecies are given like a patriarchal blessing that extend throughout his life. And then he prophesies that through the seed of Joseph, son of Jacob, will come forth a seer, a choice seer. And that is, we believe, Joseph Smith, because he's also named after his father, Joseph Smith. And those are the four Josephs that are in this chapter. And I have in my margins of this chapter three, Joseph one, Joseph two, Joseph three, because it does get confusing sometimes. But the amazing thing is Lehi has a record of Joseph. Really, Lehi has a record that we don't have in our Bibles. It must have been on the brass plate. There's more there. The Joseph's story in Egypt is an amazing story, of course. As, as he goes, uh, he's sold into slavery by his brothers. When they come down and need to be helped, they're starving. The famine is going on. And Joseph has risen to such prominence there in Egypt that he's in a position to be able to save the household of Jacob. All of the 12 sons of Jacob would have died if it hadn't have been for Joseph in Egypt. Lehi, he's a descendant of Joseph, which he says right here in chapter 3, verse 4, I am a descendant of Joseph who was carried captive into Egypt. This is the first time we learn that he is not from Judah, even though he was living in Jerusalem. That's correct. And that gives him a special interest in the story of Joseph. And maybe he knows that enough, Lehi does, that he names his lastborn Joseph. And remember, Joseph was one of the younger sons. He has one younger brother, but uh, Joseph is one of the youngest. In the 12 tribes of Jacob. In the 12 tribes. Yes. And we see the same pattern here. But here we have a, a wide expanse of ages between the oldest and the youngest of Lehi and Sariah's children. And it makes for a complicated family situation, but Lehi wants them all to, to be united and to know that there will be a great blessing that will come from this youngest one. I want to start in the text, if you don't mind letting me read from chapter 3, verse 7. Joseph said, so he's reading the record from the brass plates of Joseph of Egypt. Thus saith the Lord unto me, a choice seer will I raise up from the fruit of thy loins, and he shall be esteemed highly among the fruit of thy loins. Uh, this choice seer, he goes on to describe in verse 9, he's going to be like Moses, and he's going to have great knowledge. And the seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins, and unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins, not to the 
bringing forth of my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing of them of my word, which shall already have gone forth among them. He's talking about the Book of Mormon, I think. He's saying, um, Joseph, you're going to have a record. And this record is going to come forth from the feet of your loins, from this seer. And it is going to, in verse 12, confound the false doctrines. What you've been describing here is uh, Joseph Smith. Yes. Who will be this choice seer. Yes. Who will be, in a way, like Moses. So it's interesting that Joseph Smith will come, will bring forth the law, as Moses did. But he will also organize Israel as Joseph organizes the church. Joseph Smith, of course, will fulfill many functions and roles because he's bringing forth the fullness of the gospel. But one of those from Lehi's perspective is he will now be the successor of the tradition of Moses, which is not just to one tribe, the tribe of Judah, but Moses is bringing together all of the house of Israel and gathering them, as will be said here, from even the isles of the sea. And they think they are on an island, they say. And so they feel like they are remote, they are obscure, but they will not be forgotten. And the great promise is, I am sure of this thing, Lehi says. I am sure of the promise of Moses. For the Lord hath said unto me, I will preserve thy seed forever. So Lehi knows that his legacy, his seed will not die out. And indeed, through the survival of the Lamanites and lots of others, the, the posterity of Lehi has survived. And they've gone to the Isles of the Sea, as is said here, and a lot of other places. And they will be gathered. And the gathering is the most important work we should be doing now. This choice seer who's going to translate the records of Lehi's descendants is going to have um, a record that is going to help teach the truth of the Bible, which is powerful. And I have seen that fulfilled. And I think we know this is Joseph Smith because of verse 15, if we haven't been convinced yet. The name that she shall be called after me, and it shall be after the name of his father. There it is. There's our four Josephs right there. And this record, the Book of Mormon that we love and are studying this year, has one main purpose, and that is to testify of the truthfulness of the Bible. We have Jesus's record in the old world and Jesus's record in the new world. How can we get a clear and coherent understanding of the complexities of the Bible? The Book of Mormon is the answer because it deals with so many things, but from a different time and different perspective. And when you put these two points together, uh, as Tad Collister has said so well, and many others. If you have two points, you have a straight line between those two points. If you just have one point, you can have lots of different lines spinning out of that single point. And I think also it's, it goes both ways, that there are certain things that we don't find in the Book of Mormon that are then added and clarified by what we have in the Bible. So it's a two-way street. We'll take, for example, Paul's statement about the organization of the church. There were some apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so forth. We don't have that kind of statement in the Book of no, Mormon. No, that's 600 years later. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so you have to have both. But if you put them together and take what is consistent and compatible between the two, 
you, you get the clear and precious and plain things that are necessary and have been restored. This blessing to Joseph then ends again reminding us of the covenant. These beautiful verses on remember the covenant. I will not break my side if you would please keep yours. And then in 24, he talks about the mighty wonders and he wants him to be an instrument in their hands to bring forth God's great work. I feel the same messages are given to us. You know, we as um, the Latter-day Saints, whether we're from Joseph or not, many of us are adopted into that tribe or one of the 12 tribes to bring forth this great work. So in a sense, this chapter is about us. We are the ones who are trying to confound false doctrines and bring together again the gathering of Israel. And that's how I think these two books will grow together and be one in our hand. Uh, When we read them both and read them together, they reinforce mutually one another. The Bible and the Book of Mormon, they aren't inconsistent with each other. They, they fill in each other's gaps. And we have a fullness when we are through with the two reading. And in fact, let's look at verse 12 for just a minute, where Lehi says something very similar to what Ezekiel said in chapter 37. And bear in mind that Ezekiel and Lehi were contemporaries of each other. Lehi may be a little older, but the image and the idea of two sticks that will be brought together somehow. And a stick is a scroll. This is where their scriptures were. And those two sticks, it says, shall come together and for the reunification and the, uh, of Israel and also the clarification of doctrine. So, This is a a relatively obscure passage, but it becomes completely clear through the fulfillment of uh, this prophecy by the Book of Mormon. There's nothing else that comes close to fulfilling this prophecy, as does the Book of Mormon. Chapter 3 finishes the blessing of Joseph, and then in chapter 4, we have the blessings to the grandchildren and Sam and Ishmael's children and the daughters. And I love the fact that he goes back again to the images of the Garden of Eden and says, you children will not be punished for your parents' sins. You may have to have some of the consequences of living their lifestyles, but you will not be punished those punishments will go on your road. You know, right from the start, this idea that we are not punished for Adam's transgressions. And Jack, this was revolutionary in, in understanding the scriptures. We need the Book of Mormon here to get these kind of details. To see it applied that way, of course, there was a principle in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, which is an interesting one. Right in the law, Deuteronomy says, the fathers shall not be put to death for the children, Neither shall the children be put to death for the fathers. Every man shall be put to death for his own sin. Joseph Smith expresses this idea in the second article of faith. We believe that a man will be punished for his own sins and not for Adam's transgressions. And he could have added, and not for his children's or his parents' transgressions either. We are individually accountable for what we do. And and this is so normal to us in our faith tradition that we don't realize this is a different theology than others have. That's right. And in the laws of different nations at the time of Lehi, it was common for 
children to be put to death for the wrongs of their, their parents. For example, in the law of Hammurabi, if a doctor operates on someone's child and the child dies, the punishment is that the doctor's child will be put to death. Oh, dear! But, but this idea that, that somehow justice has to balance things out, or that that's, that's the best way to get doctors or other people, uh, that's a principle that could apply to many different kinds of situations. But it was a misunderstanding. But Deuteronomy makes it clear that we are individually responsible, for, even within the family. We're not responsible for what our parents do, and, we're, and our children are not responsible for what we do. And even though we read that in Deuteronomy, with Lehi restating it here, we get the clarification. Because in the 19th century, most of Christianity believed in the depravity of man. Humanity is born in wickedness, and they are naturally evil. And they are doomed for <laughs> Satan's world unless they come unto Christ. And Lehi does not give that message as he finishes up these beautiful blessings. And skipping down to verse 12, it came to pass that after my father Lehi had spoken unto his household, according to his feelings of his heart and the spirit of the Lord, which was in him, he waxed old and it came to pass that he died and was buried. And from this point forward, we get Nephi's beautiful psalm. And I see it so appropriately after the death because there is a time of mourning and lamentation. And I don't know if he's writing this immediately and then retranslates it later and records it in his record because we don't think he's really writing this record until years later. But whenever he's writing it, this is one of the most human sides of Nephi we see. We're taking a look into his heart. I love Nephi's psalm. Nephi also shows here not just his ability to share his emotions. Uh, he, he is an open person who admits his weaknesses. Yes. He re realizes our vulnerability. Maybe he's learned this by the hardship and the disappointments and maybe thinking, I wonder what I could have done to, to have been better to Laman and Lemuel so we wouldn't have divided. Lehi is now dead, and Le we can't look to Lehi to bring us together anymore. Uh, so Nephi it's is... very reflective. He, he is. He's very honest, very candid, and it's a good model for us lots of times. We, we need to admit our weaknesses and admit our problems and within the family, uh, let people know how much we, we rely on each other. And Nephi yearns for that. And so Nephi takes some time, I think, to compose this. I do too. I, I don't think that this beautiful composition just somehow rolls off the, uh, the tongue and particularly as, as it's being inscribed on the plates. This is kind of Nephi's farewell to his father, but also his recognition that without his father, on whom he has relied so much, he now must turn even more to the Lord. You mentioned the idea that this is a lament. We have a book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. Jeremiah. And, of course, Jeremiah saw a lot of things to lament over. 
Lamentations were often composed and used in connection with funerals, because that's when people mourn, and sometimes for prolonged periods. And they had songs of mourning and lamentation to help e emote and to unload the, the burdens and the problems that, and the loneliness and the loss that they're carrying. These lamentations show up not just in Hebrew literature or, or in the Old Testament, uh, they also show up in other ancient Near Eastern and classical languages. I was fascinated to see that Nephi's psalm follows this ancient structure. I looked at some laments in the Psalms, um, Psalm 13 and 34, 71, 140, as well as the Jeremiah text, and they all start with an invocation and then their complaint. And then they do this confession of trust. After they describe their own weaknesses, they trust in God. Then they have their petition to God. And it ends with this promise and vow to God that they will follow. And I just think of Joseph Smith translating this lickety-split as fast as a quill could go. And he had no idea of this ancient pattern. And I only know of it in the Old Testament. But you said there are patterns of this outside of the Old Testament. There's some Homeric structure of this of lamentations as well yes. okay well it's it's exactly right here it's a bullseye this text is an ancient text this is one of a, another evidence of the book of mormon yeah and it is it's a beautiful passage and it's it's not just following uh mechanically a you know stylized kind of lamentation he's not just pretending this this is so personal Oh, let's get in the text to see the personality of it, because yeah. it is personal. Let's just dive right in. Chapter 4. So starting in verse 15, I write the things of my soul. Right there, it tells us, Jack, he is going to be open and transparent with us here. And he says his soul delights in Scripture, which is very evident, because he quotes the Old Testament or the brass plates over and over. Um, but he ponders them. What a, what a good example for me. But verse 16 is where he starts this beautiful... Um, lament. Yes, go ahead. Behold, my soul delighteth in the things of the Lord, and my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. This is a nice couplet, a parallelism, and this will happen in many of these verses where the verses are actually two parts. They complement each other. Here he's saying, my soul delights in the things of the Lord. So this would be all anything pertaining to the Lord, especially in, in Nephi's world, the scriptures, the temple, the uh, uh, sacrifices that were being made, the teachings and instructions. And my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. His own personal experiences. That's right. That personal revelation here is put maybe not on par, but at least coupled with the things of the Lord. And we follow that model too, that the scriptures are scripture, but they need to be adapted and, and uh, implemented and personalized. And notice he says, my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. So he hasn't forgotten the visions. Mm-hmm that he has seen. He, he hasn't forgotten the words that the Lord has spoken to him. He probably more than just ponders them, 
He's probably reciting them, remembering them. They have that tradition of memorizing books of Scripture. Yeah, exactly. But from this beautiful little two verses here, 17 now says, Notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing this great marvelous work, my heart exclaimeth, and here he goes, O wretched man that I am! Yea, my heart sorroweth because of my flesh. My soul grieveth because of my iniquities. I am encompassed about with temptations and sins, and they so easily beset me. He becomes a real person to me here. Yes, he knows the goodness of God. But then why does he have a bad thought about his brothers? Or why does he get angry about an, some little thing? You know, I, this is just, I think all of us can just slip into Nephi's life here and say, I have the same experience. And when I desire to rejoice, my heart groans because of my sins. You know, our, our consciences kind of come in there and try to cut us off. We know who's presenting those things to, to not allow us to have these spiritual experiences, to raise doubts in our minds and in our spirits. Nevertheless, he says, I know in whom I have trusted. Amen. And, and I think that we can all say that. We know in whom we have trusted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We, we may not know all of God's purposes, but we know in whom we have trusted. And he can trust him because he continues on to say, he's my support during afflictions in my wildernesses, and he has filled me with his love to the consuming of my flesh. Now, I have never experienced that, but I've never experienced the trials that he has either. And if there is opposition, perhaps that's why. But the consuming of my flesh. What does that mean? I don't know. Well, the flesh, of course, is in opposition to the spirit. And so I think he's saying that when the spirit comes to us, our flesh becomes less significant. We become less conscious of these sins. They, they fade into the background, and we can now concentrate on the Lord and on His righteousness. And the Spirit is the cleansing power. So the, yes. the, spirit, the sins would be cleansed. And that's when he remembers back to the time when his enemies quaked before him, and he talks about his visions in 23, and the prayers and the angels that came. I just love every word of this psalm. And yet he then asks again in 27, why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Why should I give way to temptation? I'm I'm sure we've all asked ourselves this question. Why should my soul linger in the valley of sorrow and my flesh waste away and my strength slacken because of mine afflictions? This is such an important question. And notice he will ask why, 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 why? There are four whys there. We've mentioned this before, that Elder Ballard has encouraged us to ask these why questions. He once said said that the why question will be the most likely question to help open ourselves to revelation. And he says, why am I angry because of my iniquity? Now, these, of course, are rhetorical questions. And then the answers start coming in 28. Here is where he answers his whys. That's right. And he starts out by quoting, Awake, my soul, no longer droop in sin. 
Rejoice, my heart, and give place no more to the enemy of my soul. Do not anger again because of mine enemies. So that's the enemy of his soul, is that he's getting angry about his enemies. Or or his brothers. <laughs> I think that's who he's referring to. Yep. Do not slacken my strength because of mine affliction. Rejoice, O my heart. Cry unto the Lord. And it's interesting if heart means mind as well, then in addition to emotions, then he's saying, I have got to control my thoughts and I've got to control my emotions. And I'm going to take charge and I am going to cry unto the Lord. This is all verse 30. Lord, I will praise thee forever. Yea, I will rejoice in thee, my God, my rock of my salvation. So how do we leave the times when we're encompassed by our sins and our frustrations and our enemies and our anger? Well, he gives us a step-by-step process where we can go through A handbook. A handbook. And you begin, I will cry unto the Lord. You address the Lord. And he will begin here a series of, O Lords, six of them. O Lord, I will praise thee forever. Now, that's making a promise. By being thankful, you get out of your own point of view. You're Mm -hmm. thinking more of how much you appreciate and are benefited by what he has done. Not only will I do this, I will do this forever. Yea, my soul will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Now that, that phrase, rock of my salvation, is also in the Psalms. Nephi is drawing upon a number of psalm phrases. It's almost like a mosaic of the psalms it is. here. And you wonder, how can he pull these phrases together? I think they had memorized. Which psalms had he memorized? Most of them. When would they have memorized them? As they sang upon the, <laughs> their walking and as they, he was in Jerusalem. But mostly in the temple. Oh. The psalms are, is the hymn book. Of course. But, but they probably didn't have each had their own hymnal. <laughs> their hymnal where they could pull it out. I don't think so. They had to have them memorized. And I think they also, we have indications that as they went to the temple, they would sing these songs as yes. they walked. Yes, yes. The songs, the hymns of ascent. Yeah, yeah. Verse 31, wilt thou redeem my soul? Now, this is so interesting to me because do you remember Lehi finishes by saying, the Lord will redeem my soul from hell. And here Nephi is asking the same question. You've shown me such great and wonderful things, and I still blow it. I still fall. I still become a victim to anger. And then he says, Will you still do it? Will you redeem my soul? Let's look at that word redeem for just a minute. Oh, I love it. Because uh, the concept of redemption, we think of it just in a theological sense. But if you go to Leviticus chapter 25, toward the end of that chapter, there are several verses that talk about the Redeemer, and if you become a slave, or if you become so poor that you have to indenture yourself to someone else and work for that person. You need a Redeemer to buy you back. That's right. And who can be your Redeemer? It has to be a relative of yours. It has to be a family member. Otherwise, You know, if you're, maybe you have a neighbor who isn't your relative, but he thinks, well, I'd like to have that person come work for me. Oh, so he's not doing it to get you out of slavery. He's trying to do it to increase your servitude. But you don't want to create a market. No, Where people can say, well, I'll buy that person. Or you don't want a situation where you have become a slave or an indentured worker 
to someone and that person says, well, I don't like what you're doing. So every Redeemer now, is a family member. So I'll put you up for sale in the marketplace. They can't do that. He can say, I will release you and let you go home. But there are only certain people who have the right to come in and redeem you. And Jesus is our brother. And so he is a relative who can come and exercise the right of redemption. Now, what Nephi is asking for here is, be come and redeem my soul. I am at risk of becoming a captive, a slave of the devil. And you can come and buy me, give me my freedom. Continuing in verse 31, do you see down there the last line? He's asking the Lord to help him shake at the appearance of sin. Oh, yes. That's wonderful. I know. I just tried that in my own lives. What does that shake? What does that mean to shake? Recognize that what I'm about to do is offensive to God. Help me to be repulsed from it. Help me to be repel. How about Uh, afraid of it? Yes. Shake at the fear of it. Okay. Shaking at the fear of it. Knowing the consequences of it. After expressing his willingness, want to be delivered, want to be redeemed, and shaking at sin, rejecting it, now he wants the Lord to do his part. And the Lord is requested to, may the gates of hell be shut continually before me. Because that's the redemption that he needs. He needs to be redeemed from hell. Yeah. And who's going to shut those gates? Oh, Jesus Christ. And that will happen because my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. So there we have again, the broken heart and contrite spirit. O Lord, wilt thou not shut thy gates of thy righteousness before me, but let me walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain road. We talk about the covenant path. And here, the promise is, if you'll let me walk in that path, I know it's the low path, meaning... It's in the valley. I'm not having to climb up over rugged mountains. The covenant path is smooth. It's nice. It's, there's probably water along the side of it. But I will be able to walk in the low valley. And if so, I will be strict in the plain road. What does that mean? I won't wander. I'll be strict in keeping all of the observances and the needs of walking in the covenant. And the way we go from flirting with the gates of hell to the gates of righteousness is through having a broken heart and contrite spirit and strict in walking on the Lord's path. Because Christ says, I am the way. This is what he's talking about. The plain road can mean that it's plain and obvious, but it also can be like a plain, it's level. It's not filled with rocks and bumps and things like that. And that's the way the path of righteousness is. It's a plain way. Sometimes we overcomplicate things and we, you know, we wish life were more exciting and, you know, things like that. But the plainness and the simplicity and many people, Jesus say, says, will we'll stumble because of the plainness, the simpleness of the way. And then comes my favorite verse, verse 33. Oh, Lord. Wilt thou encircle me round about in the robe of thy righteousness? O Lord, wilt thou make my escape before mine enemies? Wilt thou make my path straight 
before me? Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way, but that I would clear my way before me and hedge not up my way, the ways of my enemy? This reminds me of that ancient definition of the atonement, the ancient definition. Do you remember Hugh Nibley describes this kahar, the idea that you're escaping from your enemies, you're running in the wilderness, you're fleeing, and you prostrate yourself before the tent of a sheik pleading for redemption pleading for safety and, and food and security and help me from my enemies. And then if the sheik will take the door flap of this tent or or his own clothing, whatever, and he covers you um, as you're fleeing, and then you embrace in this opening of the tent, of this opening of the tabernacle, you embrace, and then you're welcomed into his presence for safety. If that is the root word for atone, Nephi is describing it perfectly here. He is going to be encircled in the robes of righteousness after he has escaped from sin. His enemy is sin. It's not his brothers. It's sin. And as you say, the, the Hebrew word kofer can mean to cover. And the powers of Christ cover a multitude of sins. And what we're asking for here as the gates of righteousness, those are the temple doors. I think the whole thing is temple symbolism. The robes of righteousness are temple clothing. Putting on temple garments. And if you do that, then the way will be clear and my enemies will have no power over me. And I'll be covered You've got my uh, my needs covered. It's it's such a powerful idea and expressed so beautifully in this psalm. He continues on in verse thirty four. I have trusted in thee. So remember back to the uh, uh, the the five stages of the classic lament that you talked about. Stage four was that at some point in this lamentation process. The person who is lamenting will make an actual petition, will ask that something be done. Pleading to the Lord. It's not just enough to to weep and to mourn, but to say, Lord, what I would like you to do is this. Make a request in honesty, and he will answer your request. And here, what Nephi is asking for is, encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness. He doesn't want to be made a king, doesn't want a king's robe. He simply wants to have the righteousness as the, the aegis, the, the protection. And the uh, lament uh, pattern then ends with stage five, where you make some kind of a vow wow. of praise. And verses 34 and 35 do exactly that. I have trusted in thee, and I will trust in thee forever. There's the, there's the vow, isn't the vow, it? Yeah. Right there. He keeps going. I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh, for I know that cursed is he that put his trust in the arm of flesh. Yea, cursed is he that puts his trust in man or maketh the flesh his arm. I know that God will give me liberally to him who asketh. Yea, my God will give me if I ask not amiss. And that is so beautifully, because it, it sounds as, a little bit like James, you know, when James says, you've got to ask um, and God will give you liberally. At least the word is twice used in both those verses, not that the, he's the, quoting the same. But we, everything we ask for is not for our best. We have to say, thy will be done. And we have to say, good, better, best. If I ask not amiss, I think is a huge addition to all of our prayers, all of our petitions, all of our vows. And then in reciprocity, what can we offer? And Nephi finishes by saying, 
Here's what I'll do for you, Lord. I will lift up my voice unto thee. I will cry unto thee, my God, the rock of righteousness. Behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting God. Amen. Amen. That is the Psalm of Nephi, chapter 4, one of the most powerful, um, open-hearted prophets' messages that we can all apply. And I remember reading this and starting to notice how, O Lord, O Lord, O Lord, how many times does he use O Lord? Because with six O Lords and four other times just Lord. Now, the word Lord here is almost always a translation of the word Jehovah, Yahweh. And that cannot be pronounced under Jewish ritual procedures in the temple out loud, except, and there is an exception, and you know when it is. Day of Atonement at the veil where the high priest. And the high priest can then speak the name of Jehovah out loud ten times. But it has to be 10 because 10 is the perfect number. So you were, you were right that this has a lot of Day of Atonement overtones. And Joseph Smith translated this by the gift and power of God. He would never have known that little Old Testament detail. And isn't it, you know, I just want to say that a lot of these insights that I am grateful for have come to me when I've been trying to serve other people. I don't think that these kinds of insights or uh, understandings or awareness and internalizing these things are, are just given to us for our personal amusement. They are given to us when we are blessing other people so that we can bless other people. And I think that's what Nephi is doing here too. He wants to bless his children and grandchildren. He wants to bless the efforts that they are now turning to as they say farewell to Lehi. And now we'll turn attention to building a temple. That's chapter 5. And that's where we go next. And the Nephites, before they can build the temple, there is a separation. Um, so the brothers have finally, now that Lehi has died, they finally start attacking Nephi to try to kill him. As I mentioned last week, when we went through the organization of all these parallels between first Nephi and second Nephi, this is one of them. Lehi's family had to leave Jerusalem and now Nephi's family will have to leave the land of their first inheritance. And as they do so, they don't really want to, um, but they're able to take with them the records, the brass plates, the liahona, which was then called the compass or the ball. It's not called the liahona till later. Lots of people come. Everybody, in fact, it says also my sisters. Now, this is the first reference in sisters. Some people have suggested the sisters were born between Jacob and Joseph. And that's why it's my last born in the wilderness, that there was in between Jacob and Joseph. You know, he had this second family almost kind of an idea. All those who believe in the warnings of the revelation of God. Wherefore, they did hearken unto my words, and they took their tents, and just like Lehi did, they they did it again. They also take the sword of Laban, and they go out, and it says in verse 16, once they get to this new place, it says many days that they're traveling, but once they get there, 
I did build a temple, and I did construct it after the manner of the Temple of Solomon. So I don't know if that meant it was 90 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet, or if that meant we just had a holy of holies and a holy place. But this is so interesting because we have not had—they're not from Aaron. They're not of the priesthood authority. This is coming because of the holy order of God, which we'll talk about more next week. But they're building this temple. One of the very first— uh, objections that was raised by Alexander Campbell against the Book of Mormon in 1831 was the idea that there can only be one place where there is a proper temple. Oh, okay. Because Deuteronomy chapter 12 talks about the place yes. and trying to centralize the worship of Jehovah there in yeah, Jerusalem. And so he said, this is a problem here. But in fact, uh, we do find archaeologically that there were temples in many other places in ancient Israel. Jerusalem was not the only place. We don't know exactly when and why they used those other temples, but we know that there were several. He ends verse 16 by saying, and the workmanship thereof was exceeding fine. And then he talks about their being industrious and laboring with their hands. And doesn't that make you think of some temples that have been built? Yes, like Kirtland, <laughs> Nauvoo, and, yeah. and Salt, Salt Lake, Lake, and so many others. The, the dedication of temples comes not from the materials that are put into it, but by the, the hearts and the devotion that go into the planning and the labor and some people giving their lives to make these temples possible. And I think Nephi wants us to be clear that the workmanship, we gave it our very best. I also think it's significant that the Old Testament at least initially, before the, the first captivities, centered around the temple. It's not until later that they start centering around the law. But um, the temple was the central focus, and here we see the same pattern. This is an ancient text. And then verse 27 says, they live after the manner of happiness. So, Verse 28 says he's been 30 years have passed away. They've got the temple built. They've got teachers teaching. They're living after the manner of happiness. And it's only been 30 years since they left Jerusalem. But then there's only just a couple verses. We talk about making other plates before it's 40 years. So we really jump a huge section of time here. So Nephi says here that I had kept the records upon my plates of Nephi, which we would call the large plates of Nephi. And the large plates of Nephi begin with the book of Lehi. So we had Lehi's work, and then Nephi has been writing kind of his chronicle of what they've been doing. But now he is inspired to make another set of plates. And this is for the profit of thy people, and on them will be engraven the things which are pleasing to God. I think it's important that this second set of plates is being created in connection with the consecration of Jacob and Joseph as priests and teachers. Because the first set of plates will, be, will remain the record of the, the public officers, history. the history, and that, the large plates, will then serve the king and the royal household but now we're going to have a sacred record. Well, these three chapters are some of the most beautiful chapters in all of Second Nephi. And they testify of Christ, 
and I add my testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Redeemer of the world, and they testify of the atonement and the way that we can remove ourselves from sin through repentance and forgiveness. This is one reason why I love the Book of Mormon. And the Book of Mormon never disappoints me at all levels of spiritual instruction, of truthfulness, of brilliant interaction with other traditions and texts, solving personal problems and family problems and national problems. But most of all, helping us, as Nephi does when he pours out his soul, to be on a good relationship with our Heavenly Father and with our Savior, Jesus Christ, and knowing that he is our Redeemer makes life meaningful and happy and joyous for me and I'm sure for everyone who takes this and integrates it into their lives. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <laughs>